Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. We've sat through a six-week funeral for our daughter, Laura. And uh, you all know what a wonderful woman she was, as well as all the pains and struggles that she faced. You also know about the evil beings that took her life, and if society's lucky, we will not see them again on the streets. Today's verdict really brings us little joy. The loss of Laura is no less painful today than when it was realized five years ago. Like any parent that loses a child, we can only move forward with the thoughts of what might have been. To all those who are friends to Laura, especially the strangers, because of you, our faith in humanity remains steadfast, although obviously shaken. We hope that the kindness you showed Laura is returned to you tenfold. Where Laura Babcock was, who she was spending time with, and the series of events that unfolded after her disappearance in July of 2012 are all details that were before a jury this past week. The Crown wrapped its case after five weeks of testimony, presenting jurors with a timeline showing what it believes happened. The co-accused, Dellen Millard, 32, of Toronto, and Mark Smitch, 30, of Oakville, Ontario, pled not guilty to first-degree murder. The Crown's theory is that Babcock's murder may have been motivated by a love triangle. The court heard Millard called her a problem that he'd get rid of, a promise he made to his girlfriend at the time, Christine Nudka. And today, we are going to investigate why Laura Babcock was murdered. So please, don't leave me. I will update you on the missing person's case of Miss Laura Babcock. On Sunday, July 14th, 2012, Laura Babcock was reported missing by an ex-boyfriend who became concerned when he could no longer reach her. A missing person's report was generated and an investigation was commenced. The members of number 22 Division Criminal Investigation Bureau interviewed several witnesses and attempted to track during the days before she was reported missing. The investigation was thorough and and employed all of the traditional methods used in any missing persons case. During the weekend of May 10, 2013, a Mr. Dellen Millard was arrested. As a result of his arrest, the Toronto Police Service became aware of several phone records belonging to Laura Babcock. As a result of this information, a production order was prepared and we are now conducting a comprehensive review of the entire phone records. I can confirm at this time that there appears to be phone contact on July 3rd, 2012 between Laura Babcock and Mr. Della Millard. I cannot comment any further on these specific records as we are attempting to speak to other individuals who have been in contact or, or have been identified as having contact with Laura. Between Tuesday, May 28, 2013, and Thursday, May 30, 2013, a criminal code search warrant was ex- executed at a farm located at 2548 Roseville Road in Waterloo Region. I can confirm that an area of interest was identified and the area was searched using several high-tech devices. I can say that as a result of that search, no evidence was located. Today, we are releasing new images of Laura Babcock and I would like to provide the following description. Laura is a female white, 24 years of age, 135 to 140 pounds, long brown hair. However, she has been known to dye her hair blonde. She's also known to wear a belly button ring and is deaf on on her left ear. Laura Babcock was also known to be involved in the sex trade business as an internet escort. The Toronto Police is now appealing to the public for any information that will assist in locating Laura Babcock. Anyone with information is asked to contact our dedicated line at 416-808-2280 or through the regular phone uh, contacts through Crime Stoppers. In 2008, Dellen Millard met Laura Babcock at Brunswick House, a downtown Toronto bar. They date for a few weeks and then remain friends who occasionally sleep together. 
In 2011, Laura Babcock dates Shauna Lerner. He calls her an amazing girl with a big heart. The two had long broken up by that summer, but remained close friends. Lerner, 29, had given Babcock her most cherished possession, her little Maltese dog named Lacey. He told the jury at trial the last time he saw Laura Babcock was at the end of June of 2012. When a few days passed and he heard nothing, he set out to find her. He started a Facebook group and managed to track down her phone bill, calling all of her contacts and keeping track in a small notebook. As he scanned Babcock's last phone bill, he discovered her final eight phone outgoing calls were to Millard. He reached out to Millard in a text message. I'm really concerned for her safety, not trying to point a finger, just wondering if she might have mentioned something in passing that could help us find her. Millard eventually wrote back, I heard about that. I don't know where she is. Lerner pressed Millard to meet him for coffee at a Starbucks in Mississauga, Ontario. Millard told him that Laura was mixed up with drugs and the wrong people. And before they parted ways, Millard told Lerner he should have no reasonable expectation of finding her. Dellen questioned Lerner's recollection of their encounter in court. Sean remained steadfast. That was probably the most important meeting of my life. The things I remember clearly, I remember clearly. They found that Laura struggled with mental health and more than a dozen of her hospital visits are documented between August 2011 and April 2012. A summary of Laura Babcock's mental health records and documents detailing multiple hospital stays and conversations she had with doctors and nurses were read out loud as part of an agreed statement of fact in court. Crown attorney Jill Cameron faced jury members, seven men and seven women, as she read out the statement. Laura Babcock told healthcare workers that she had a history of anxiety and depression and that she had harmed herself. During one of her documented hospital visits in August of 2011, she told a nurse that she was crying all the time. She also talked about an intense fear of death, a feeling that could last one day to months. Friends testified that Laura, an intelligent University of Toronto graduate, was both bubbly and fun-loving, and also very open about her struggles with mental health. That May, Elizabeth Van Rosenberg was driving home to Toronto from Kingston when she saw Laura's number flash on her phone. They'd been friends, she told the jury, since they were born. That conversation was a two full hours, her entire drive, and it would be their last. Van Rosenberg said she mostly just listened. Stefan Blasik, who was also in constant communication with Laura, was one of her best friends, and on July 1st, he offered her a place to stay. At the time, he lived at home with his parents, who kept a strict no-dogs rule. Laura, who never parted with Lacey for long, would stay just one night. But they had fun. They watched movies and ate burritos and laughed a lot. See, there is kind of a strange thing to the Laura Babcock trial, which is Millard and his friend Smitch were charged with her first-degree murder. They already are serving a first-degree murder sentence in the death of Tim Bosma. I didn't cover the death of Tim Bosma because it's a very convoluted and long story, but if you want to go back and hear coverage of the story about that charge and how that unfolded, I would encourage you to please go to Canadian True Crime, where Christy had covered that story in three compelling episodes. She'll walk you through the details of how Tim Bosma was murdered and how Dylan Millard, the wealthy spoiled brat, was charged with his murder and his friend Mark Smitch his accomplice, was also found guilty of those charges. In the trial for Babcock, Smitch was wise enough to hire his own attorneys. However, Dellen, in all of his wisdom, decided to represent himself. 
So some of the witnesses in the trial of Laura Babcock, unfortunately, were cross-examined by Dylan Millar. Revelations came from one of Babcock's best friends, Megan Orr, 29, who now lives in the United States, but flew back to Toronto to testify at the trial. Orr told the jury that she was at the home of Babcock's parents in Etobicoke, in the west end of Toronto, when her friend burst into tears after reading a text. Orr testified that she ushered her friend outside to get some fresh air. It was February 12th of 2012, Babcock's 23rd birthday. Court heard the beginning of a nasty text exchange through another witness who was friends with Babcock and Nuga, Caroline Sherinian. Sherinian testified that she and Nuga, who she's still best friends with, thought it would be funny to send a catty message to the birthday girl. Nuga crafted the text to Babcock. Sherinian said it read, Happy birthday. A year ago today was the first time I slept with Dellen. Babcock fired back. That's fine. I slept with him a couple of weeks ago. Orr revealed one final message to the jury. Nuka's response read, Did you miss your medication today? You're a crazy psycho bitch just trying to get my boyfriend. You had him and you lost him. Give it up. That love triangle and the complexities of who was sleeping with who and when have dominated much of the testimony during that trial. Millard, acting as his own lawyer, cross-examined Sherinian. At times, his questioning seemed erratic, but he appeared determined to establish himself as a bad boyfriend. He told the jury that he slept with multiple women, not just Laura, while dating Nuka. Sherinian said she was aware Millard had slept with a stripper during a trip that he took to Mexico in 2011. She said it was also well known that he was carrying on a sexual affair with his ex-fiancee. Sherinian told jury members that Nuga also knew what Millard was up to, but for some reason she stuck around, she said. During opening statements, the Crown Attorney, Jill Cameron, told the jury that Laura Babcock was a problem Millard promised Nuka he would take care of. He's quoted as saying, First, I'm going to hurt her. Then I'll make her leave. I will remove her from our lives. Millard pressed Sherinian about the bad blood between them, saying the two women were always bickering. Millard added, And I didn't seem to care too much about it. And Sherinian just shrugged. Millard then picked at Sherinian's own falling out with Babcock. The two women met while working at a toy store in downtown Toronto and were close friends until there was some kind of disagreement. Mean would be an understatement, Sherinian said, referring to Laura. In one of two statements to police, Sherinian called Babcock evil, something she clarified in court. She said she knew the right buttons to press to really upset people. Millard added his own observation calling Laura manipulative and suggesting that she would blackmail people about whatever she was obsessing with at the moment. He asked Sherinian she would do anything to get what she wanted. Only when she was off her meds, Sherinian replied. Orr, too, had disconnected with Laura, but not because of a falling out. She testified she was increasingly concerned about the path that her friend was going down, including heavier drug use and escorting. The two had become friends when they met in 2011, and Orr claimed she was an amazing girl. She had a lot of emotional issues, but I understood her. Orr had to pause for a moment as she cried. She was bubbly, she was outgoing, she was amazing. But in the spring of 2012, Laura seemed to take a downward spiral, Orr testified. She argued with her parents about wanting to stay out late in the curfews that they imposed. Her parents really cared about Laura. They were only strict because they wanted the best for her, Orr said. Linda and Clayton Babcock, who every day of the trial sat in the front row of the public gallery, also teared up. A friend passed them some Kleenex. Orr said Babcock talked about suicide when things got especially tough, but told jury members that Laura would never take her own life. Escorting brought a new strain to their friendship, so Orr pulled back no longer hanging out with Babcock in person. But they continued to communicate every day by phone and text message. 
Orr said that Babcock wasn't ashamed about escorting and was quite open about enjoying the attention and the money that she was making. She even asked Orr if she'd been interested in trying it out. And Orr said, absolutely not, just be safe. When it was Millard's turn to question Orr, he asked if Laura ever mentioned him. All the time, Orr replied. For the most part, Orr said Babcock gushed about Millard. She found him attractive and showed Orr dirty text messages the two continued to share while he was dating Nudga. But after Nudga found out Babcock and Millard were sleeping together, Orr said things changed. It got heated up and you guys stopped talking, she testified. Orr told Court the last time she spoke with Babcock in early 2012, Laura seemed happy. She told her friend that she was talking with Millard again. Crown Jill Cameron was trying to clarify something in Millard's questioning, that Laura was planning to move into a friend's place, a man called Nate, after she planned leaving the hotel at the end of June. Her former boyfriend and close friend, Sean Lerner, was paying for Babcock to stay in a hotel after she bounced around from a few places. She disagreed with her parents about house rules, and we also know that she was staying with a high school friend who introduced her to escorting in the spring of 2012. On April 16th of 2012, Millard texts Laura, You're harmful to me. Please don't try to contact me until you've made some huge leaps of self-discovery. As I've said before, good luck with life. Laura texts their mutual friend, Andrew Murkowski. Yeah, Del's deaf not a fan of me. He told me that he told Christina when he slept with me before. Uh, these people cause so much unwanted drama for me and they bring me into it. That brings us to Andrew Mikowski. He was one of Del and Millard's former friends and he testified in court that he was asked to keep tabs on Laura Babcock in the months before she vanished. Andrew, a 27-year-old Toronto-area plumber, was part of Millard's inner circle a group that partied hard and often at the accused killer's home in Etobicoke, Ontario. The jury was shown text messages that Millard sent Mikulski on May 4th of 2012. One of them read, If you could keep me updated on where Laura goes, that'd be of some use to me. When asked by Crown Prosecutor Ken Lockhart what Millard meant, Mikulski responded that he never asked. Other text messages shown to the jury revealed that Mikulski described bad blood between Laura and Millard and a woman that he was dating, Christina Nuga. The Crown's theory is that Babcock was murdered with the motivation being a love triangle. On April 16th of 2012, Laura sent Mikulski a message that she had received from Millard. It read, Of course, I don't know your disorder. It's yours, and you don't know anyone else's. It's unfortunate you got dealt a bad hand. I don't blame you for your disorder, but it's up to you to manage it. This is your life, Laura. Babcock then asked Mikulski, Am I that bad of a person? He responded that she needed to watch what she said. Mikulski, who told the jury he tried several times to sleep with Babcock unsuccessfully, said he only learned of her disappearance after seeing a news article posted on Facebook. Millard spent his cross-examination taking one of his former best friends down memory lane, telling the court despite their close bond, which at one point included matching mohawks, he never confessed to killing Babcock. I never said I killed that girl, or I took care of that girl, did I, Millard asked Andrew. We were such close friends, I could have brought that up if I wanted, but I didn't. Mikulski responded briefly, you didn't. Millard showed the court a number of photos of the two men, often with different women. Millard repeatedly pointed out which ones he said he was romantically involved with. Millard said, we used to be best friends. We haven't spoken in some more than four and a half years. Millard asked Mikulski to pull up one of the statements he gave to police. Millard points out that Mikulski was questioned in this one statement about inconsistencies in previous statements. Millard then stated, You're here to give the facts, not your opinion. 
I'm interested in things you've actually heard, seen, or actually done. Millard tells the court that the two men met in 2008 and bonded over video games. Dylan said, I'm a chef, I'm a helicopter pilot, I worked in the video game industry for a short period, I took up makeup artistry, specifically for Halloween, faking injuries. When someone tries to pin down my background story, they will get a number of answers. Andrew agreed, yes. Dylan brought up a photo on one of four large flat screens. It showed a group of young men. Both Millard and Andrew are in it. They're standing next to a Hummer and a Jeep. Dylan calls it one of their off-roading adventures. He adds, we had a lot of fun. Dylan points out he had six vehicles and he let the guys drive them, but he says Andrew was the only one he trusted to actually take them. Dylan now hands out a booklet to the jury. Dylan talks about the first one that shows a yellow jeep. That girl in the picture, that's not Christina Nudga, is it? No, Andrew answers. Dylan tells the court this was the jeep they used in the Baja race in Mexico. Dylan says this is where he found Pedo, his dog, a stray that I just scooped up in my arms and he would accompany me often. Andrew reflected, everywhere. Millard shows the court a photo, and you see a red hood on the left corner with a yellow sticker. There's a Baja 500 written on the side mirror. There are two men in the background, and Dylan is one of them, and he's talking to a border card. Dylan says he often had trouble at the border. We were searched very thoroughly, Dylan says. I always had issues at the border. I always got searched. Andrew answered, correct. Dylan now shows the court a text conversation from July 29th of 2012. It begins with Andrew asking if Dylan can teach him how to fly. Dylan said he'd trade services with him. Andrew Mikulski would go to do some plumbing work while Dylan Millard would teach him how to fly and cover the cost of gas. Andrew said, I need to fucking build my credit back. I'm going to get royally fucked. Let's build a bike first. Andrew is in Winnipeg at this point, where he was working as a plumber. He then texts about a girl asking for her advice. Dylan wrote, Take a deep breath. Hit reset on your emotions, bro. Think about today and tomorrow, not yesterday. Dylan later writes to him about the girl. Girls will test you always. Sometimes they bitch, sometimes they apologize. Dylan tells the court he often offers this kind of advice to friends, and he continues to go through this text conversation where they talk about girls. Christina Nuga and a woman named Jen. Andrew says, You just want to have good sex? Marry a stripper. Dylan responds, you're talking about my relationships with women, just chasing girls around for sex. Yes, answered Andrew. At this point, Justice Michael Code interrupts. I'm having a real hard time seeing where this is all going. If this is of no relevance to this trial, maybe you can try and get to the point. Dylan starts to speak. Millard changes topics. He pulls up a photo of his father's firearms license and asks... Is this a photo of my father? Andrew says, yes it is. There's a photo of the hangar where Millard says, we had a big party to celebrate your birthday. Another is of a helicopter where Millard said, I took you up in that for a couple of joy rides. And then Dylan changes topics now to substance use, drinking, marijuana, vaping, cocaine, and a handful of occasions, he says. Did I lose control or get angry? Andrew says he did not. Dylan says towards the end of their friendship, he stopped drinking altogether, and Andrew agreed. At the same time, Andrew stopped smoking marijuana. Next, Dylan pulls up a screen capture that seems to show scores for a video game. Andrew used the name Stealth Missions. Millard was Zygocyte. I was a team player, right? Smitch isn't on the score list. Millard says, Smitch wouldn't play with us? Dylan clarifies, the scores are for a game called Halo. He shows more photos, moving a mattress of one of the bedrooms in his Etobicoke home, and then moving a mattress down the stairs into the basement. 
another of Millard and Mikulski and two girls playing some sort of video game. Dylan points out in court, we were both having sexual relations with these girls. Andrew answers, correct. Dylan shows the court a screen capture of another text message, and in it, Dylan suggests that Andrew can have sex with Christina Nuga. Andrew says, that's okay, man, she's yours. Millard responded, yeah, in the summer she'll be better. She needs to get into better shape. Dylan writes Mikulski back about Christina Nuga and says that he'd broke it off with her a few weeks ago because he caught her texting other guys. Dylan asks him, what was your understanding? There were a number of girls I would see and have relationships with. Andrew answers, yes. Millard goes on, Laura and I had a brief relationship. It was a couple of weeks, maybe a month. Andrew responds roughly. Dallin says, The relationship was a sexual nature, early in our friendship, sometime in 2008-2009. Despite that, I'd stay friends with Laura. She'd show up at Maple Gate for parties, but not as often as some people. Dylan asks if Andrew's opinion that Dylan was having sex with Babcock in the spring-summer of 2012, and he says it is. He explains that he thought that because they would hang out together. Andrew says that Babcock never told him that directly, and Millard says, You assumed it. You never saw Laura and I kissing or having sex. Andrew answers no. Never. Dylan asks, it's all an assumption based on fact that I have a lot of girlfriends? Andrew answers, correct. Millard shows more photos of him and Andrew, and more of them posing next to vehicles. Then he shows some of Smitch in Millard's basement, and Andrew agrees that that's Smitch. Dylan says, it's a Jeep that I bought for Jennifer. I never bought a vehicle for Christina. Do you recall any other gifts I bought for Christina? Andrew answered, no. Andrew who referred to his former friend several times as Sir, told the jury that Millard and Babcock were still romantically linked in the months before she disappeared, which Dellen questioned. What was missing from most of it was Smitch. Dellen said to Andrew, You and I were best friends. We worked together well. Mr. Smitch and I didn't get along well, but I supported him. I protected him. And Andrew agreed. Before Andrew was finished in the witness box, Crown Prosecutor Ken Lockhart stood to clarify a point, asking what he would have done if Dylan had confessed to killing Laura. You would have called the police, Lockhart asked. Of course, Andrew answered. Dylan Millard also grilled Smitch's ex-girlfriend about testimony that she gave about a night she saw the two friends testing out an animal incinerator, and he got her to admit that she'd lied to police on several occasions. Marlena Menaces, 23, told the court that Millard and Smitch ordered her to stay in the car, leave them alone, and listen to music while they tested the machine, instructions they often gave her. Dellen brought up several conflicting statements that Menaces gave to police. In one of them, she told officers she knew nothing about the incinerator. Marlena told jury members that she disliked Millard because of lewd comments he often made about her appearance. He said to Menaces, I smacked your butt once. Menaces corrected him, pointing out that it was more than once. Dylan maintained he remembered just the one time. You gave me a dirty look, so I knew you didn't like it. It was unwanted contact, and I'm very sorry, Marlena. Dylan also admitted to teasing her, who at one time was an 18-year-old high school dropout, asking her trivia questions that he knew would make her feel dumb. By midsummer 2012, you started spending time at my house, he said. She agreed. Dellen said, You kind of liked me at first, then you didn't like me. Then Dellen went on to say, We smoked a lot of weed together. He brings up a text message that she sent him asking where Smitch was one night. He'd gone out to spray graffiti, and Dellen asks why she reached out to him, and she said, I thought he may be with you. And Dellen said, If Mark were in trouble, I was someone you could call. She reflected and answered, he was your best friend. Dellen said, another word to describe it was brothers. If he was in trouble, he'd call me, not police. Marlena responded, it depends how bad it was. Dellen asks her if she pays her rent, buys her own food and cigarettes. She said, I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time finding if this is relevant. 
Dylan responds and says that it's up to the Crown to decide. At that point again, Justice Michael Code interjects and agrees with the witness. Millard continues, back then, you didn't have a job. She says at first she didn't, but then she got one at Metro. Dylan asks her who bought the marijuana she smoked. I worked for the weed. That was my payment, she responded. Dylan pointed out that he bought the fast food, and she says yes. Dylan was going through a list of all the things he bought. Gas, snacks at the gas station, shopping trips to Costco, food for barbecues, and booze. I paid for everything, he sums up. Menaces raises her voice. At the same time, we did work for you. You felt obligated to because of the work that Mark and I did for you. Dylan points out she cleaned washrooms at the hangar and washed cars. Marlena said she liked to help out, and Millard points out that Smitch and Menaces stayed at an apartment that he owned and they didn't pay rent. Then he changed the topic. He brought up a time when she helped him with a job he couldn't figure out. It was a small engine repair, and she had taken some courses. Dylan asked her, It felt good to do something that I couldn't. Then she smiled widely. It felt amazing. That got a big laugh from the courtroom, and Dylan pulled up a photo of a pink iPhone. He gave her a phone. Do you know how much a 4S was worth when it was new? About a thousand dollars, she answered. How do you spell the word hanger? Crown, Jill Cameron interjected, asking how it was relevant. Dylan said, I was just teasing the witness. Justice Code told him that it's not the purpose of a cross-examination. So, Dylan tries again. Despite the teasing, you learned a lot from me? Marlene answered, oh, I learned a lot from all of this. Dylan said, I functioned as Mark's shield, didn't I? And she responded, I guess that's if you want to call it that. Dylan said, I mean, if Mark did anything you didn't like, it was my fault. And he talks about her relationship with Smitch, calling it unhealthy. Dylan claimed, it was a controlling abusive relationship. He didn't like to call you his girlfriend. He called you bitch or the bitch. Dylan said he didn't stop Smitch. And she agrees. Dylan pulls up an iPad, one that Mark got in the summer of 2012. Marlena said that Mark got the iPad after she saw the incinerator in use. Millard questions her on the date, asking if she's certain, because there are selfies of her from before that date. At that point, court had heard evidence that the incinerator was used on July 23, 2012, and that's the night that the Crown alleged Babcock's body was burned. He says the selfies are from July 6th, 7th, and 8th. She reflects and says, my recollection could be wrong. About the iPad, Court heard that it was Babcock's iPad, given by her former boyfriend, Sean Lerner, and it was renamed Mark's iPad after her alleged murder, which the Crown contended happened on July 3rd or 4th. Millard brings up Marlena's police statement about the incinerator, and in it, she offers, I saw it once. She tells Millard she later clarified with the police that she'd seen it more than once, in June of 2013. She also told police that she'd never seen the incinerator in use. Dylan said, but before the weekend, you told us you saw it being used. She raised her voice and said, also in my statement, I told police about it being used. She gave multiple statements to the police, and Dylan focuses on one from June 2013. He asks her about the testimony she gave when she saw the co-accused test the incinerator. She recalled the summer night at Millard's farm when Millard and Smitch told her to stay in the car, listen to music, and leave them alone. Then she says, I don't remember who said what, just that you both said stay in the car and don't look back and keep your headphones in. Dylan keeps asking her about her police statement. Again, she gave several statements. And in one of them, she describes getting out of the car at the farm. Dylan asked, which one is it? Did you stay in the car? Did you keep your headphones on or did you get out? And she answers, everything I said to the crown is all in my statement. And then Dylan shows two photos to her, a pair of her in pink and black gloves found by the police at his farm. 
Then you see a picture of what Dylan called an old school gun. She saw it at his house sitting on his bed and she said she wanted to go to a shooting range. Dylan said, I'm going to suggest you're wrong about that. Agree or disagree? She reflects and says, I disagree strongly. Millard says, I'm going to suggest you fired that gun. She responds, no. Then she changes her mind and she says, yes. So you were lying a second ago? Yes, I'm sorry. Dellen asked Manasis about a tricky scale. Justice Michael Code asked for a definition, and she explained it's a scale that doesn't weigh accurately. She said it was Mark's scale, and she added to it when selling marijuana to friends. Dellen returns to her police statements when officers asked her about the incinerator and what did she know about it. Crown Jill Cameron interjected, I have an issue with this. Willard says, the witness has admitted to giving false and inaccurate information. So Dellen says, you've lied to the police in the past and been dishonest with police in the past, and you've lied under oath. She reflects and says, yes, but I've corrected myself later. Dellen looks at her and says, Marlena, you've told a lot of lies under oath, haven't you? She puts her head down and says, yes. Millard says he forgot a question. He's brought up a photo of the gun from earlier that he asked her about. He asks her about traveling to the United States, just the two of them, when they went to pick up ammunition for his gun. Marlena says, I don't remember that. And Dellen says, I'm going to suggest you brought back the ammunition. She responds, I don't remember. Dellen says, can I suggest your memory has conveniently elapsed? Are you lying? And Marlena says, I didn't bring back ammunition. You probably did. At that point, Mark Smitch's lawyer, Thomas Dungy, took over, and he talks about her meeting Smitch at Tim Hortons. It was love at first sight for both of you, she agrees. Thomas tells the court, Marlena was still in high school. She was having trouble at home with some girls in that school. She needed money. And she had a poor relationship with her stepfather. You wanted to get out of the house, so you called Mark. Smitch had helped her move into his mother's place. Mark's lawyer says that Mark had just returned home to live with his mother. She had cancer, so he was helping her out. He tells the court that Smitch bought her food, clothes, and encouraged her to go back to school. She had dropped out, and so had he. His lawyer says that Smitch wanted Mencius to finish grade 12 because he hadn't. You are infatuated with him, he asks. She agrees. Then he says, you didn't think Mr. Millard was a good influence on your relationship? Marlena says, right. You were together night and day? Repeating Smitch and Mencius were inseparable, and she agrees yes. He also talks about the odd jobs that she did for Millard cleaning washrooms, washing cars, painting, building shelves. The lawyer says it's not normal for two people always being together. It's bound to cause friction. She responds, correct. Then he switches to Smitch's rapping. He was rapping all the time, the storytelling type. She agrees. It's common for him to use the word bitch, which is common in certain youth groups. Yes, she says. It was his aim in life, his goal. Dellen had talked about getting him a studio and recording an album. Switch's lawyer says Mark was always talking in a rap matter, playing a part. He lives at night and day. Marlena said that's correct. Then he begins to ask her about the Eliminator. And he says it's not uncommon for Mark and Millard to tell you to go off on your own. That wasn't unusual. And she agrees. Then he says they weren't saying get away from here. Then he turns to the iPad. Marlena recalls Millard and Smitch deleting stuff off the iPad. So the lawyer points out other people used the iPad, including Dellen, and his then-girlfriend, Christina Nudga. Marlena responds, correct. They told her they were testing it. Then Dungy says, you come to court and you come to tell the truth. You've admitted at times you did lie, right? Because you're telling the truth today. She agreed yes. 
The iPad was given to you by Mark and Dellen, she repeats yes. After that, Crown Attorney Jill Cameron is up to clarify a couple of points. She pulls up Marlena's statement from June 2013 when officers asked if she'd seen the incinerator in use, and she responded one time. Marlena then goes on in the police statement to describe a trip to the farm and being told to stay in the car. So Cameron continues to refer to Marlena's police statements. You gave a total of eight police statements and testified over three days at another proceeding. Mr. Millard asked you about two lies under oath to police, the first in relation to cancelling a phone and ever seeing an incinerator. Why did you not tell the truth? Jill Cameron says the two lies were told in her first full statement to police on May 22nd of 2013. Marlena explains, it was all fresh, I wasn't sure, I was scared, I was young. So Jill Cameron says, since that time, have you lied to police? And she answers no. Around April 17th of 2012, Nudka was a camp counselor overseeing children taking part in summer programming. Dellen texts Christina about Babcock, and that's when he said, first I'm going to hurt her, then I'll make her leave, I'll remove her from our lives. In another text message, Dellen compared Leroy Babcock to herpes that he was going to get rid of. Messages between Dellen and his then-girlfriend were presented in court. As retired OPP officer Jim Falconer testified, he was one of the Crown's key witnesses in the Ontario Superior Court trial. He walked the jury through a wealth of information that was found on electronic devices connected to Millard and Smitch. In one message from April of 2012, Nudga compared Babcock to herpes, and Millard responded saying, There's a difference. Herpes you can't really get rid of, it just feeds off you until you die. Members of Babcock's family wiped away tears through the afternoon as sexually explicit messages between Laura and Millard were discussed. In one message from December in 2011, Laura texts Millard saying, You know I want you. And Dylan responded by calling her a bad girl, saying that her timing is terrible. One particularly explicit passage between Millard and Nuga, Babcock's mother, looked over at Millard scowling. I fancy myself something of an undercover doctor. I think with the right treatment, these herpes can be gotten rid of. In a text message from Nudga to Dellen on April 19th, she wrote, I don't know why, but when I hear you say things like, I'm going to hurt her, make her leave, remove her from our lives, I feel really loved and warmed inside. Court also saw pictures of a homemade incinerator that Millard asked a person referred to as Shaner to build in May of 2012. It looked like several green drums welded together on top of each other, and in messages between Millard and Smitch from that month, the two talked about testing it. At one point, Smitch wrote that, We gotta bring something with bones in it. Maybe you should get me a dog or your neighbor's dog, lol, Smitch wrote in another message. Other messages between the two describing Smitch's money troubles were also shown in court. How ruthless are you, willing to make money? I have some ideas, but it's next level stuff, read one text from Millard. We'll talk about it this weekend. I know you need income. The response was, I gotta do something or else I'm screwed. Dylan instructs his mechanic Shane Schlappman to build a homemade incinerator. He later tells him to order a commercial one. Falconer told the court that it took a team of five people several months to comb through the sheer volume of electronic data. Justice Michael Cole told the jury that Faulkner is undoubtedly the most substantial witness of the trial. He said the first backup of the iPad happened on July 4th of 2012 at 10.43 a.m. That's around the time that the Crown alleges Laura was killed. Though it's named Mark's iPad, the email associated with the Apple ID is dell.millard at hotmail.com. Presentation says both Mark Smitch and his then-girlfriend Marlena Menesis were using the iPad at the time. We're now seeing messages from Dellen to Kowalski. Dellen asks if he could keep him updated on where Laura goes out, and that's from May 4th, 2012. That same June, Laura is working two shifts for last-minute escorts. 
Laura's brief stint as an escort was once again under the microscope. Two Toronto men, the owner of Last Minute Escorts and one of his drivers, took turns in the witness box. They were among the last people to see Laura before she disappeared. Shlomo Abuav said he ran the escorting service and she worked a couple of nights. He told the jury Laura worked one night for him in early June and then returned a few weeks later to work another night. She wanted to be an actress, he recalled, smiling. Hollywood. Abuav told jury members that Laura's first job, she had broken one of the rules. After visiting a client, Laura met with the service's driver and gave him the money that she was paid, about $260 an hour. She'd get half. Laura told the driver she was going to take the subway home. Instead, he testified she went back to the client's house. During cross-examination, fixated on this, asking about the dangers that they could present, when they go out on their own, they lose private security, Abuav responded. Dellen, who started the trial with collar-length hair, but now wears it shorter with a small ponytail on the right side, pressed Abuav about the gap between Laura's two jobs as an escort, suggesting she was escorted on her own. The witness shrugged his shoulders, saying that he had no idea what she was up to. The last time he saw Laura was after her second and final client with his agency. Abuav arrived at the escorting office in Midtown Toronto to find Laura sleeping. She was surrounded by a number of suitcases and her small dog was with her. Abuav told her she couldn't stay, so she called a taxi and left. He wasn't aware that she was missing until Linda Babcock, Laura's mother, called several weeks later. I told her the truth, that she was here, but I hadn't seen her, he testified. One of Laura's best friends, Stefan Blasiak, told court that Laura was an amazing girl who was excited for life, and that was the last time they hung out. Blasiak told the jury, as several friends have now also mentioned in the witness box, that he offered her a place to crash, and at the time, he lived with his parents who had a strict no-dog rule. Blasiak said that Babcock talked about going on a trip to Disneyland or Las Vegas, a perk of her new job working as an escort. Something else was new too, he testified. Laura, who regularly smoked marijuana, had picked up a cocaine habit. Still, he described their final night together as fun and perfectly ordinary. The Crown played a brief clip that Blasiak captured of Babcock on her phone. It's one of those inside jokes between friends that you only understand if you were there. Babcock used to like to meow in public just to get a laugh. I thought she looked goofy, so I wanted to show her what she looked like to everyone else, Blasiak told the jury. That was the first video Court had seen of Laura Babcock, and he claimed that Laura had called him to stay the night and then asked for another night, but he refused. Her parents, Linda and Clayton, looked up at one of the large screens playing their daughter's image, blonde with big sunglasses and a sheepish grin. They smiled as they watched. She moves her little dog Lacey and all her belongings between clients' places and friends' couches. Lerner pays for her to stay at a pet-friendly hotel in downtown Toronto and gives her an iPad. On June 27th of 2012, a good Samaritan named Jessica Trevers sees Laura and Lacey on a park bench in the middle of the night and she offers them a place to stay for four days. Travers drives Babcock to her parents' home in Etobicoke, Ontario, and she said that Laura had never mentioned suicide. Court heard that Travers was one of the last people to see her before she disappeared also. It was midnight in the late June of 2012 when Jessica Travers was smoking a cigarette. She said she saw a cab pull up with a young woman, and she had a pile of luggage and a tiny white dog got out, and the pair settled on a park bench. Trevor's 29, is a pastry chef, and she watched the girl from her porch for about 15 minutes before deciding to cross the street and introduce herself. The young woman turned out to be Laura Babcock, and she said she had nowhere to go. I didn't want her to sleep on the street, Trevor's testified. The first morning, Trevor said she woke up to a clean apartment, and Laura said she stayed up all night dusting and doing the dishes. She said she wanted to show me that she was thankful. The two became friends, hanging out and going to restaurants and bars nearby. Trevor said that Laura was open with her about working as an escort. Laura also mentioned that she was going to have a guy meet up with them, 
so she could get some cocaine. When Trevor seemed uncomfortable, the man told her that it was just baking soda. She said, are you sure that's okay? And he responded, it's better than what she would be doing. But when one of Trevor's friends came over and Laura mentioned escorting and suggested that Trevor's should join in, the friend politely said she thought it was time for Laura to move on. Laura wasn't happy. Trevor's testified that she stomped around a lot, but eventually they agreed that Trevor's would drive Babcock home to the home of her parents in Etobicoke, and she said she felt comfortable taking her there because that's where she would want to go. It was June 30th of 2012 when they pulled up outside of Babcock's childhood home. Trevor's, Babcock, and her constant companion Lacey the Maltese. Trevor said that Babcock seemed happy and the two exchanged numbers and hugged. They would talk again later the same day. Trevor's let Babcock know she forgot Lacey's food and water dishes and a pair of sunglasses at her apartment. Laura promised that she'd pick them up, but she never did. Trevor said that Babcock only talked about her future. She wanted to have a school where she could teach people to act and dance. Bradley Dean, a Toronto-area man who also spent time with Laura while escorting in June of 2012, told the court that he worried she didn't have a permanent home. I was concerned for her. I just wanted her to get settled, he testified. Dean is the third man to testify that he knew Laura through her work as an escort. He only knew her as Elle. Their first meeting was at his downtown apartment in Toronto. He told jury members that they hung out for an hour and talked. He said Babcock was actually quite articulate and intelligent. She was a conversationalist and she was fun. At their second meeting a week later, Laura arrived with a suitcase. She said she didn't have anywhere to stay. I was hoping to help her. It wasn't appropriate for her to stay at my place, but I didn't want her to stay on the street, he said. Dean, as well as another man who knew Laura through escorting, testified that they didn't sleep with her, but they did pay her. A film and television producer told the jury that he let Laura stay at his home for two weeks, while a doctor offered to help her pay for an apartment, though that never materialized. He and everyone else stopped hearing from her in early July. Dellen Millard repeatedly tried to point out what he suggested were inconsistencies between Dean's testimony and what he had told police. He asked him again and again, are you being truthful? In one of his statements to police, Dean told detectives that he had a drink with Laura at a Toronto bar on July 10th of 2012. He later claimed it was a misunderstanding. He claimed, I'm single and dating and I've met a number of girls there. But Dellen continued to press him, alleging Dean changed his story to protect himself. Millard said to Dean, this trial is pretty serious business. Speaking in an audible scoff from the packed courtroom, do you want to change any of your evidence? Dean said he did not. Okay, I think we're going to leave it at this point for today. I'll be posting episode two shortly, so you won't have to wait too long. I'd be looking forward to hearing any of your comments on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I also have a site on Podbean where you can comment or like. And again, it's always helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. 